This is Ravi Gupta, and you're listening to The Regressives, a narrative podcast series from Lost Debate that examines progressive policies, ideas, and leaders in practice. And this is a series that we drop every now and then on the Lost Debate show feed. So if you came here for the regular Lost Debate show, I hope you stick around, but also know that our regular shows for that show drop Tuesdays and Thursdays. But in these Regressives episodes, I take a step back as somebody who's been a veteran of progressive campaigns and say, well, how do liberals profess values and practices line up and, and where are they out of sync? And this podcast is dedicated to shining a light on any discrepancies that are there between those values and practices in the hopes of eliminating them. And today I'm really excited because my friend Shavar Jeffries is on the podcast. He ran for mayor of Newark back in the day, and he's now the president of Democrats for Education education reform and the national president of education reform now. And he's been pushing for school choice for every child in the US. And in particular, he's been fighting to have a different conversation about what school choice even means, and particularly trying to push progressives to think critically about the kinds of choice that they exercise versus the kinds of choice that they're shutting off from kids around the country. And that's a lot of what we talk about in this podcast, which is like, how do we improve our schools and offer options to families, especially the most vulnerable, while also taking care of our educators, while also bringing more people to the table and being more inclusive. And so that's what we're here to talk about. But Shavar is also a hardcore lawyer. He's a super impressive guy who used to run the class action litigation clinic at Seton Hall. He was a counselor to the uh, Attorney General of the state of New Jersey. He's a graduate of Columbia Law School. And his story is so powerful. He escaped a lot of adversity as a kid and went on to you know much success in his life and has never stopped asking about how do we take care of kids like him who are coming up through the system and facing hurdles. So let's jump right into the conversation. All right, Shavar Jeffries, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Good to see you. Well, Shavar, I'm, I've always been inspired by your story and why you even got into education issues as, as a main cause of your life. Tell us a little bit about uh, your your childhood in the in the South Ward of Newark. Yeah, so I, you know, I grew up um, in an amazing neighborhood with amazing people. Um, now, our neighborhood didn't have the resources that it should have had or that it deserved. So I grew up, you know, in a, in a lower income. Uh, segregated African-American community, of course, de facto segregation, but it was just black folks who largely had immigrated from the South, you know, who were in that part of North when I grew up. Uh, my mom was amazing. Um, so she was a teenage mom. Uh, so that obviously, you know, brought a whole bunch of challenges with it. Um, and, you know, I would lose my mom when I was young to domestic violence. You know, so she would end up uh, horribly uh, being, being killed by my stepfather. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that obviously was unspeakable. Uh, so my grandmother raised me and she was a former public school teacher and believed deeply in the power of education to transform lives. And when I was in eighth grade, a philanthropist created a scholarship program uh, administrated through the Boys and Girls Club in Newark. So my grandma would put me in the club after school, to, you know, keep me off the street. You know, and this in the 80s when, you know, the crack era was pretty big um, in the Northeast and definitely in Newark. And so she wanted me to be in the Boys and Girls Club so I wasn't getting into trouble. And I'd always done well in school. And one of the days, one of the counselors came and said, we have this scholarship program for kids to go to college prep high schools. And we think you'd be great. Um, somehow they got a hold of my grandmother and she heard about it. And they're like, we're sending you to this all boys Catholic high school uh, in West Orange, New Jersey, which I did not want to go to. Uh, it was all <laughs> boys, you know, at 12 years old in 1987, uh, about to be 13. That did not sound hot to me. You had to wear the khaki <laughs> pants, those you know, beige khaki pants that some people still wear that I think look crazy. 
Um, I, I thought they looked even <laughs> crazier back then. And But my grandma was like, that's what you're going to do. You're going to go up there and whatever those priests tell you to do, you better do. And I continued to do well in school, continued to excel. And I saw how I was put, I was being put on a different trajectory than the kids in my neighborhood, right? Who were probably many of them, not even probably, many of them smarter, tougher, stronger, more creative, but they didn't get tapped on the shoulder at the Boys and Girls Club. And so I'm, yeah. I'm talking, the more I get there, I'm talking about, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And while I was speaking more about what was possible for me, a lot of my peers were speaking about what wasn't possible. Well, we, we don't know anybody going to college. How are we going to go to college? And so very long story short, uh, after receiving this opportunity to go to this college prep high school, I'd be the first in my family to go away to college. I had scholarships to go to college. I'd become a lawyer. And it was very clear to me that I didn't get blessed with this opportunity to then just do well for myself. So right after law school, I came back to Newark. Um, I'm a civil rights attorney. So I, I began suing the school system for not providing adequate educational services to students from special ed to not funding the schools the right way to retaliation against teachers. And at that time, the charter school framework was new in New Jersey. And I met a gentleman who wanted to create a school and he told me we're going to create a public school. We're going to have the highest expectations for the babies. We believe they're amazing. And we're going to hold every adult who comes into that building responsible to do everything they can to educate each of, each of these students. And I was like, I'm in. And that was 21 years ago. And I've been in this fight since then. Wow. Who was that, by the way, who approached you? That was Ryan Hill. So Ryan Hill. Oh my God. Yeah. Good friend. Good friend. You know, Ryan. Yeah. So Ryan. Yeah. So a friend of mine from college, so I went to Duke for college and a friend of mine from college was teaching with Ryan. I believe Ryan was in TFA at the time. They're teaching at a school in New York and Ryan was coming. He was in that first group. So, so he's a part of the first group of Kip. So I think Kip had a school in New York and Houston. And then they received money from the Fisher Fund to support new school leaders. I think he was in that first group. I think there's only two Kip schools at that time. Kip was very small. I didn't know what Kip was. Not many people knew what Kip was. But when he was, he was thinking about opening a school either in New York or in Newark. And my friend Nick, who he was teaching with, said, if you think about Newark, you got to talk to my man, Shavar, because I love Newark. Anybody <laughs> sees me, I'm talking about Newark. And so we met and he told me the vision he had. We send in everybody to college, period. We know that the children are amazing and we're going to work our butts off for them each and every day. I was like, I'm in. I love that. And so I became the founding board chair of Kip. Uh, Newark uh, in 2001. And I'm very proud 21 years later, depending on the year, we tend to send more black low income students to college than any other public school system in the state of New Jersey. So I'm very proud of that. Wow. And congratulations. And I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure we'll get into it also. But most of my work has been trying to get the district uh, to support changes in our district. I'm not one of these who gets in, who gets caught up in one sector versus the other. I just want more great public schools for kids. I could care less if they district, public charter school. I just want children to have access to great public schools. Yeah, so so paint a picture for us. Let's let's stick with Newark for a second before we we zero uh, we we sort of widen our lens to the national conversation, which you're also involved in. But Newark has always been fascinating to me because you know back in the day when I was learning to start a charter school, they took me to North Star Academy in Newark, and. It was one of, you know, and Julie Jackson was the principal at the time, and Virilli was the principal of the middle school. It was like this magical place, uncommon schools. And then I met Ryan and I learned about all the stuff that was happening at Kip. And, you know, not a huge city, but seems to have an outsized amount of really great public charter schools. Mm -hmm. And paint that picture for us, like, of how many people, how many students 
uh, attend any kind of public school in the city of Newark? What percentage of those are chartered now? And what we know about their outcomes relative to alternative models? Yeah, so yeah, we've grown a lot um, in terms of public charter sector in North. Like I said, when I started, which right around the same time, um, Uncommon and Julie, who's amazing, and Norm uh, started, um, you know, we were very small. Now the public charter sector is probably around 35% uh, in that ballpark in terms of the number of students it serves in the, in the city of Newark. Um, you know, which so, would probably make it on the very high end of percentage of, of students in a school district that are charter, right? Nationally, like that's a number yeah. that's way above average, I would imagine. Yeah, right? definitely above average. You know, obviously, New Orleans is close to basically 100 percent. D.C. Is, is above is around 50. But yeah, we're, we're definitely on the upper end. There's no question about that. Um, so, you know, roughly, you know, 13, 14,000 students in that ballpark, roughly around 40,000 in the city. And, you know, Credo did a study and they had they found that uh, Newark was the second highest public charter performing public charter sector in the country behind Boston. Um, and I think that's connected. And you're referencing just for the audience, you're referencing Stanford's research arm for yes. education called the called Credo. Yes. You know, generally the gold standard for student performance. Yes. And Sorry. wow, that congratulations. That's huge because Boston was the uh, the first place I went before I went to Newark, you know, back in the day, like such a high performing charter network and way more restricted in their growth given the state law. So when I when we first started KIPP, you know, charters really weren't a political issue at that point. It was very small, right, in New Jersey. Um, and frankly, throughout most of the country at that point, we started in 01 and opened in 02. I would say you get to the President Obama era where he began to really push more forcefully, particularly within the Democratic Party at the national level. They're always mayors, right? They're always mayors for a good 20 years because when you're mayor, you're, you're at ground zero. And you understand right. that our pub, traditional public schools are awesome in a lot of ways, but have a lot of challenges and that we need to bring innovation. We need to bring competitive pressure. We need to bring accountability. So we always had mayors, whether it's Antonio Villagrosa, Adrian Fenty, Cory Booker. Carl um, Dean, you know, it's the reason why I went down to yeah. Nashville. You know, I at, at the beginning of the Obama administration, two years in is when I moved down to Nashville because of a combination of the national policy under race to the top on Obama you know, the competitive grant for our audience who are not familiar, there's a competitive grant that basically spurred a bunch of innovation, including charter school growth, high quality charter school growth across the country. You know, that paired with a very reform oriented visionary mayor and Carl Dean is what got me down there in the first place. That's right. Yeah. So you saw, you know, you saw firsthand. Right. So, I mean, at, at that time, there's a lot of win at the back. And so in that context, Newark grew a significant amount in terms of the charter sector. Um, and at that time, it was very bipartisan as well. So even when um, uh, Chris Christie came in, of course, he came in at the same time Barack Obama was the president. Um, and so they had the bipartisan appeal there. We obviously had the Zuckerberg investments in Newark. So that created an environment where we had a lot of growth. Uh, we're starting to have a lot of tail, uh, um, you know, headwinds now in New Jersey. But uh, up until I would say 2017 or, or so, 18 uh, we had a lot of wind at our back, and that's where we saw a lot of growth. Well, yeah, let's let's talk about that Zuckerberg investment because, to me, it, it's one of these areas where I think the sort of the blue check mark, you know, expert reporter level consensus about what what to take away from the Zuckerberg investment in Newark seems to conflict with my understanding of the data. And and what I mean by this is, people by and large 
view Zuckerberg's investment as a failure, like in the blue checkmark world. They're like, oh, he invested a bunch of money, didn't work out, a lot of it was wasted. And there were, you know, there've been books written about this and segments on TV written about this. Um, and, you know, the consensus is, all right, huge investment in Newark didn't work. And then when I look at the data, it seems to tell a different story. Can Am, am I right about that? Well, you are right about that. I mean, there was a study um, a couple of years ago that found that the city of Newark is number one in the United States in what's called beat the odds schools. So these are schools that serve low income students, schools that grow academic proficiency for those students to above state averages. And Newark led the country. Now was both because of growth on the district side as well as in the public charter side. And I think the, the story of the Zuckerberg investment to me is symptomatic of the underlying politics of this issue where there are those who oppose charters who invest a lot of money to frame public opinion um, and to characterize public charter schools in very negative terms. You know, these are billionaires who want to take over public education. They want to destroy the union, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and those same impulses and those same interests spend a lot of resources to categorize uh, the Zuckerberg investment in very negative terms. Were there issues in terms of in, a, in, a, in some cases, not the type of comedian involvement that we that uh, would have been advisable and that we should have had. Absolutely. Were there instances where there weren't enough black and brown local Newark folks being invested in at an equitable level? Absolutely. Um, but at the end of the day, was this disruption necessary to a system that hadn't worked well at all for low income students and that therefore then led to that number one in the country uh, beat the odds uh, outcomes I'm talking about? Absolutely. So we just don't get the balance. It's like a lot of political issues in our current environment, right? Things have to be black or white, hyper polar polarized. And the Zuckerberg issue is one of balance where there's a lot of excellent things in there. There was absolutely some missteps as well. But on balance, the students are better off. And just for folks who aren't familiar with it, what what was the total investment and what did it go towards? Yeah, so it was $200 million total. So um, Zuckerberg and um, and his wife, Priscilla Chan, they invested $100 million and it was a match. So that was leveraged for another $100 in match funds. And it went to a variety- oh, $100 million, you mean, right? Another $100 million Another hundred. million, I'm sorry. I said $200 yeah, million yeah. total. And it went to a variety of initiatives. The, the largest number, ironically, and I don't know if this was covered much, went to the teachers. So about $50 million of that 200 million went to the teachers. So it was about 31 million um, in back pay because our contract was up during that time. And there's another roughly 19 million in bonus pay, you know, merit pay, you know, for teachers really work their butts off for students. Um, so that's 25% of it. I haven't heard that story told much, but, but you know, and that was the largest tranche, um, as I recall, and that went to the educators. Uh, there's another amount of money. I can't remember right now the exact number, but another significant tranche that went to new school models within the North public schools. So these are new high schools, high schools within the traditional system to bring families back. Um, that's like Bard Early College, which is now one of our top high schools in the city of Newark. Um, we brought Eagle Academy uh, and, you know, David Banks now to Chancellor New York, but he brought the Eagle, Eagle Academy model uh, to Newark. Um, that was another large tranche. There's another large tranche for professional development support for educators uh, within the schools, uh, wraparound services, extended day programs, uh, summer professional development. Uh, so the large majority of it went to investing in supporting the traditional public school district to improve. There was an amount of money as well that went to support growth of public charter schools as well. 
So that went to some of the higher performing public charters, as well as uh, some of the single site uh, public charters that tended to be run by people of color. Uh, so it was a balanced approach. The vast majority went to the district. Some went to the public charter school network. Uh, generally, though, in the public domain, you know, that story tends not to be told accurately either. And it, what's his level of involvement now? Does he still does he and Priscilla Chan still donate money to keep this going or have they backed out? Yeah, they backed out. I mean, it's for, to my knowledge, it was a five year. It was so it was 20 million dollars from them and then another 20 match over five years. Um, I believe once the five years was up, they, they made a public announcement that, you know, they were finished. I don't know if there's been some, you know, uh, sporadic gifts here and there. I don't think so. Um, but I haven't been on top of any resource that the district have seen over the last few years, but definitely not anything meaningful. And so basically, were, were they captive to the prop propaganda that you're talking about? Like, were they were they basically convinced that it was a failed investment? I hope not. You know, I personally was involved in some conversations with, um, you know, their foundation on this issue uh, where we kind of provided, you know, the, you know, a perspective on how. Absolutely, there are missteps, but on balance, this was actually a good thing for students. That doesn't mean there's not a lot of lessons in terms of how philanthropy can better partner with communities, because there's no question about that. You know, that doesn't mean there's not lessons about around, you know, making sure we're making investments that are equitably available for people of color. Because there's no question about it. But these are broader dynamics we have in this country, in philanthropy and frankly, in this country generally when it comes to uh, racial justice and equity in terms of access to capital. But however, um, I actually personally was involved in working to try to convince them that the prevailing narrative is not accurate, right? The beat the beat the odds numbers speak for themselves. The new school models within the district speaks. For, these are some of the most popular schools within the Newark public school system now. So a lot of the schools created then, particularly Bard Early College, for example, is really a crown jewel now, um, which only happened because of the Zuckerberg monies. Um, so there was a lot of good in it. The students are, were on balance better off. And so I've worked to help, help convince them that, you know, whether or not that's what they believe, I, I don't, I can't speak to that. Right. Well, you know, it reminds me of what happened in New Orleans, right? Which is what they do is, you know, they take a, a success story of the kind of stuff we believe in and they, and because it threatens, you know, either teachers unions or, you know, prevailing ideology around neighborhood schools and privilege. And they, they weaponize anecdotes to say, all right, Yes. There's no perfect school system in America. And New Orleans had its fair share of issues that in many ways dovetail with some of the stuff you're talking about in Newark, but also had many of the same successes, right? And that was a district that basically went to 100% charter post-Katrina, uh, you know, is is honestly like one of the most important success stories in the history of American education. And you took a city that was, you know, basically leveled to the ground and were able to basically restart its school system with better odds for children overnight was like, honestly should go down in history as one of the greatest stories ever. But because there were like, you know, significant issues that had to be fixed over time, and many of which I think have been, the opponents of reform who were threatened by it were able to weaponize those issues and paint the whole thing as a failure. And to me, this is the kind of stuff we got to fight back against because it, it, it really kills any momentum for change. Amen. I couldn't agree with you more. And that's why I think platforms like this are so important in terms of getting the story out. You know, um, you know, look, those who oppose charters, you know, with teachers unions, again, we, you know, I'm not one of these. I mean, the teachers unions serve a very important purpose. Uh, teachers deserve to have uh, their, their voices heard in the process. They absolutely deserve to have a seat at the table. My concern is in too many instances, they own the table. 
right? Yes. The children and the interests of children should own the table and should drive the table and the teachers should have a seat, but everything should be centered around students. But they are a huge spender. They're a huge spender in politics, right? They're a huge investor uh, in, the, in the various political groups and community-based groups and advocates that are involved in shaping opinion around what happens in public education. And that's why those of us who are committed to this, we have to continue to be unbowed, unapologetic, and say we love our educators, love them to death. And when they're doing the right thing for our babies, we're going to be with you a thousand, a thousand percent of the time. Um, but we have to have a set of public policies that are that are designed to yield the best outcomes for students. And that's going to mean holding adults accountable. Right. Everything ain't everybody else's fault. Right. So, when, <laughs> you know, so if you're going to be in front of our babies, 183, 185 days a year, six and a half hours a day, they better not be at the end of the year right where they were when they started. Some ain't right. Right. Amen to that. And it means poor people should be able to make some choices. Everybody else does. Right. And poor people. Like, so this, well, so let's this, talk about that, by yes. the way. So school choice. You and I stay fired up, though. Uh, you and I both have counted ourselves as members of the Democratic Party. We both worked in democratic politics for a long time. And this this particular podcast is focused on shining a light on progressives to say, how can we do better? Right. So we're going to put to the side of this conversation all the many flaws in the conservative world and the way they think about education. So we'll just, we will stipulate that there are many issues and, and we in Lost Debate spent a lot of time on, on those issues, whether it's the way that CRT is being framed or the way that resources are being allocated or just the way that race is being used disingenuously and with hostility. I'll put all that to the side uh, because that's not what this, this conversation is about. You and I have been fighting within this party to try to make it more the party of Barack Obama than the party of Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. And to me, there's been this slide since those days that you talked about. When I started, Barack Obama was pro-charter school. He was pro-accountability. When you go down the line of things that Democrats for Education Reform, your organization believe in, accountability, teacher quality, you know, higher ed quality and affordability, uh, school choice. You know, Biden's not down the line opposed to everything you believe in and all those things, but he certainly is, I would say, a step back from the Barack Obamas and the Cory Bookers of the world, even the Eric Adamses of the world. What do you think has happened in, in democratic politics to change you know, to change the landscape. Like, the, obviously, there always have been Democrats who are opposed to school choice and a lot of these other issues. But what do you think has happened over the past decade plus to help shift the conversation? Well, you know, I think you know, I think the teachers unions and, and others who oppose the public charter, they're really at the center of that. Uh, they spent a lot of resources to compel candidates to accept their position. I mean, we just cut through it. I mean, they're huge. They're the number yeah. one spender in Democratic campaigns throughout the country at the national level and then the vast majority of states and absolutely the majority of blue states. Yeah, look at Warren, for example. Warren used to be pro-school choice in, in all these ways and then took a ton of money from the teachers' unions, was staring down a national race for president, and then opposed charter expansion in Massachusetts, you know, the highest performing charter state in the country, like she opposed it after being pro-voucher in her book. Yeah. You know, crazy. Yeah, I think yeah, I think she, she speaks to that. And, you know, because, you know, and it tells you a lot because with her progressive um, imperatives until she you know, wanted to do some things at the national level differently. It brought her to these issues, right? It right. brought her to this isn't working for low income families. We got to just be disruptive. And so I think that's been a yeah. big part of it. I mean, you know, most of the places where we do work, they're the biggest spender. Um, obviously, candidates want to win races. 
Now, I will say this, having said all that, we still fight and we still, you know, continue. We're, we're winning our fair share. You know, we have a number of mayors. We have people like um, Muriel Bowser and we have people like Jared Polis. And we have people like Hakeem Jeffries and we have others throughout the country who are continuing to fight the fight. Eric Adams, right, who are continuing to push. But at the but it is definitely hurtful when you go from a President Obama who is very bullish at the national level and who embodied the hopes and aspirations of our party in so many different levels to Joe Biden, who isn't, you know, he's not the worst, uh, but it's definitely not what President Obama is. And, he, and it seems that he's he's being more of a he's having more of a political calculus. I think what happened with President Obama, too, because of his local work as a community organizer in Chicago, he saw firsthand uh, what was yeah. happening to young people. And so he had a personal passion um, that he brought to bear when he got to the White House that I don't I don't think we see the same thing in terms of President Biden. Yeah, I think about this a lot because there also is this part of Obama that he seemed allergic to excuse making, you know, in a way that a lot of people in our party aren't anymore. Like when you were talking about, you know, the the way we think about educators, because I think there's this sense that we want to baby educators, right? And say, look, and I'm like, look, they have it hard. My mom's a member of teachers union. Like, it's hard. It's especially hard during the pandemic. And I, and I don't think like things like increased pay are mutually exclusive with any of the stuff that we're talking about. And I'm very for increasing pay, especially in a way that's logical and getting it, you know, increased pay early to teachers, really important to me. But there's this sense that like, you know, Obama is kind of like a, you know, look, like the world is harsh and we all need to step up, especially for children type of guy, you know, whereas I think white progressives, especially whether it's for reasons of guilt or like misplaced sense of allyship or whatever, seem to be the first people running to make excuses for a system that's letting kids down, you know, and it's hard to say that. Like, I think like a lot of people, like what I just said in certain rooms would get me booed in a lot of rooms with our friends. But I'm just like, I, I'm just calling it like I see it. It's like, I like, it's not helping any kid to tell them that they can't succeed. Like, I know you think you're making a sociological argument, but that's not going to help that child, you know? Yeah, it's not hard for me to say it. I mean, look, if you look at polls, you know, um, well over two thirds and, and it's over 70 percent African-Americans, but well over two thirds African-Americans and Latinos all in on nonprofit charters and accountability. And it's ironic that the people who move, who live in the suburbs and these suburbs are gated communities. Right. I mean, because of redlining, you know, where I live in New Jersey, I was I was on a debate not too long ago with Lily Garcia, who at that time was running the um, NEA. Um, and she made a point, hey, why can't we make the public schools in Newark just like they are the public schools in West Windsor, which is a very wealthy <laughs> suburban part of New Jersey? Yeah, why can't we have sunshine and rainbows? Yeah, yeah. world, well, world first peace. I said to her as well, West yeah. Windsor, that's a private school system. She's like, oh, no, it's it's a public. I was like, it's private because there's no affordable housing in Windsor. Matter of fact, I don't think there's any um, residential apartment housing. That means you, it, it, so you have to buy a house. And the probably the median uh, home price probably seven hundred grand. Who can afford that? So it's a closed yeah. system, and it probably the system probably isn't working that well. It's just you got a bunch of rich kids with a lot of privilege. So the idea that that some of these white progressives who live in you know disproportionately economically and residentially segregated communities want to tell low income black and brown folk that the only school they should be able to choose is a neighborhood public school that at best they can run drive by is absurd, and it's the opposite of progressive. And so my point is we can't um, be a unapologetic or, um, you know, half, you know, cocked. We got to be very clear with our progressive friends whom we agree with on so much to say this is absurd that you're taking this position 
um, contrary to the very progressive values that you claim to have. So those are the conversations I'm in on a, on a, on a regular basis. And I, we just have to continue to push. Yeah, this is the the kind of tone and energy we need from people on our side of this issue because I think so many people spent so much time. Uh, it, there was this almost Empire Strikes Back period of time. You know, there was there was the original time when I got in when, during those initial years of Race to the Top, or waiting for Superman. All this kind of stuff was going on, and there were all kinds of mistakes about the way that charters were messaged back then. But yeah. then a couple years later, it's like proponents of charters are on their heels. They're, they're having to explain the fact that they have, you know, taking money from billionaires or that, you know, they're they're explaining, you know, the admissions processes in their schools, which are usually, in my opinion, way more progressive and equitable than traditional public schools, per your point. Like, they're, they're usually not dependent on what neighborhood you live in. For example, when I had schools in Nashville, anybody in the entire city of Nashville could attend our schools. And if I had my way, anybody in the state of Tennessee could. You know, like yeah, we would we would open up to anybody at any point. And, and because of that, we had high percentage of lower income kids, African-American kids, kids with uh, disabilities, et cetera. But we were constantly on our heels trying to explain ourselves against these people who are constantly lobbying po populist attacks. And what I want out of this phase is we could we could say this is the return of the Jedi phase here is. Hey, wait a minute. What about these people criticizing us? They live in the suburbs. Like for us in Nashville, these people who had gentrified East Nashville and were doing everything possible to exclude people from attending, for instance, Lachlan Elementary School, which is basically a private school run on, on public dollars. The very thing they accuse charters of that, that charters are not in most cities. And I want that. I want them on the defensive because they're the ones defending privilege, you know? That's right. No, I agree a thousand percent. I, and I definitely think we definitely were many of us on the defensive for a period. I think when Trump won, it was such a shock to the system for those of us you know, who are Democrats. And then he embraced charters. Um, he really embraced um, not what we believe in, but for profits and lacking of accountability. And I think the whole Trump era, you know, did get some people on the back heel. But I agree with you a thousand percent. What we believe in is right. It's 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 right on the policy. And and what should be a great signal that is right the, the very kid, the very families in these communities, super majority supported. Right. So the closer those, so all of those who claim to be progressive and they talk about you got to have solutions closest to the people and you got to believe the people and you got to trust the people. The people are crystal clear in these communities that they want choice, they want accountability, and accountability goes to everybody. Right. The charter schools that aren't working, they're gonna move their kids out of there too. They're right. going for any quality public school. And so those who claim a progressive, if you're not on the right side of low-income families, particularly low-income families of color, we have to call them out unapologetically. Yeah, you make a good point. You know, the Trump, it was, this this dynamic was playing out before Trump, but Trump really made it difficult to advocate for school choice because it's one of those things where, you know, if Trump said the sky was blue, people would be like, no, you know, and I get, I get the, I get the instinct, you know, I, I'm not a fan <laughs> of him. And you were in the middle of some fights within the charter school movement, you know, and I think you resigned from at least one charter school board. And I think one of the fights that we we have been trying to figure out here is how do you how do we have this this alliance, right? Like in a lot of these states where like Tennessee is a good example, I really don't like the school board. I think it's one of the most irresponsible school boards in the history of America. I mean, San Francisco wins gold there, but it's it's close. You know, there's some good people who've gotten on that that board, but like they're 
these are people who don't wake up every single day trying to do the right thing for for all kids, right? But then you have the state, which is like pushing all this CRT stuff and book banning and it's kind of disingenuous in itself. And so we're kind of between a rock and a hard place, you know? Yeah, I mean, that that that's a tough one there. I mean, the good thing for me is not terribly difficult. That doesn't mean it's not, it's not hard politically at times, but I have pretty clear standards. When I talk about accountability, that applies across the board. So, so the fights I've been in within the public charter sector are generally around, are we, do, are we living out our values? Is the performance there? And are we working in partnership with low-income communities, disproportionate communities of color? So for example, so when I was in Newark, it was absurd to me that it seemed like the only folks for a period you know, who could access capital to run public charter schools with 26, 27-year-old white kids from, from other places. Yep. Yeah. That's absurd. And it's absurd because some people think, oh, well, you're right. That's problematic from the poly- from the political sense, which it absolutely is. But it's even more problematic because they're local people who've been running, who've been in the system, could run better schools than these kids. Yes. We have so many black and brown folks who've been, who, who've been fighting against systems and still getting great results in these districts. You would think you would say, let me identify that person and put millions of dollars behind them because they've already demonstrated the capacity to actually produce with hamp with with constraints rather than let me. You know, that's not to say there's not a space for new people coming in. Of course, there are. But there's also a space for investing in those in communities. So I've yeah. definitely been pushing our sector there. And I'm actually very proud where the sector is now. I mean, there's all type of it's getting so much better. It's getting so much, much better, better, you know, much better dramatically better. And so, you know, when one great thing about this space is it, it's it, it's much, frankly, more responsive to criticism and to and to and has more of a learning kind of modality than we see in too many of our traditional public school systems, which are very large, very bureaucratic, very inefficient, very path deterministic, just keep doing the same things over and over and over again. And so, so, so the same critique I bring to the charter space, I bring to the, the critique doesn't change. Right. So I bring the same critique to the traditional public. Are you working for kids? Are you working in partnership with communities of color? And if the results aren't there, we have to be very comfortable and un- un- unapologetic in my judgment and having those conversations. Yeah, I think we we've reached this stage now where. We're not in that that stage before where like there were all these celebrities, you know, like there are examples like, you know, like my buddy Ben down in New Orleans, one of these guys like me who probably was too young when he was blessed to start a school, but is a very talented guy, Ben Markovitz, and ran a really good charter network and it was on Oprah. You know, like Julie Jackson was on Oprah. Now the work is kind of thankless in a way, other than obviously the intrinsic joy of helping kids, which is the best thing in the entire world. But one thing I, I, I want to do more with Lost Debate and, and with the community is like, how do we shine a light on this new generation of leaders who don't get that kind of shine that folks were getting back in the day? Like before before I got in, a little bit of the time when I was in there, like people would be writing front page stories and there would be, you know, 60 minutes, you know, segments on people and all that. And now it's kind of like people are getting attacked politically for doing the work that they're doing. In some ways, they're, they're getting criticized internally, and, and sometimes it's actually valid, but it's like weighs on you as somebody who's just trying to do the work. And you're dealing with teacher shortages, you're dealing with a pandemic. And so, you know, it makes me think like, there are people, because what you were saying around community involvement made me think of Lagra Newman. I don't know if you know her down in, in Nashville, just an incredible community-oriented charter school leader who at the time was running an elementary school. She might be running more than that now. I haven't been there in four or five years. 
but does everything you're talking about. But people don't really know her. Like she she runs an excellent school. She has super high expectations. She's not running one of these like mealy mouthed like twist yourself into a pretzel new agey type of schools that's meant to like assuage sort of progressive guilt. It's like a it is a school that is that is answering the questions the community of North Nashville is asking for. She has total buy-in from the community. Even Jalen Ramsey gave her a million dollars because he's from Nashville, you know. But like within the the charter community, I often bring her up, and I'm like, we need to be putting her out there more because she's the model of what this really means uh, to do it right, right? Like I love the work I did. I love the work Ben and Ryan does. But like, we were all working in communities that we didn't have the kind of connection two that she does and so like the window is you know 5.0 or whatever is her you know we're like 2.0 uh and that's what i think this next wave needs to be i couldn't agree more i think and, and the great thing is we have a tremendous number of amazing you know next generation leaders in the education reform space all throughout the country running schools deeply rooted in communities and unyielding about results and accountability and making sure we're preparing young people to fulfill their potential. We have amazing people in the advocacy space, amazing people on the, on the philanthropic side too. Yeah. I mean, you know, the donors are much more diverse now than they've used to be. And we have to tell that story. And I absolutely agree. We got to have an infrastructure to, to thank people and to affirm them. Yeah. You know, because it, this is hard work, particularly in the midst of the pandemic, the academic work is hard enough you overlay it with the political difficulty. If we don't have a space to help people re-energize and feel affirmed, uh, we're going to lose a lot of good folks. And so what are you thinking about now on the horizon? Like, what are some of the big battles ahead when it comes to your priorities uh, at Democrats for Education Reform? I imagine one of them is getting clarity or some kind of fix to the Biden administration's perceived attack on charter schools, right? They, they, they were... They issued what it seemed like was a regulatory change to the federal grant system for charter schools. We did a whole segment on it on, on our show. My reading of it is that nobody really knows exactly what it's going to mean, but it definitely has all the signals of being very bad for high quality charter schools and as kind of a backdoor way to deny them funding. I imagine you're pushing back against that. Uh, what else is on your horizon right now? Yeah. So on, on charters, no question. So we're actively involved. You know, we're actively involved. There's an effort to undercut the program in the legislative appropriations process. We're very involved in that. We're happy to, to, to successfully defeat that in that context. But then they just moved it into the rulemaking. So we're in the midst of that fight uh, right now. Uh, you know, we have comparable fights throughout the country. Um, you know, some states have charter caps. Uh, some states have either I have de facto moratoria where it's just hard to get uh, charters approved. There's funding. And just to, just to push on something you said, you, most of those caps are in states that the charters are good, right? Like there are states that are like like Michigan, Arizona, Florida, which for, for listeners, those are states that at least the last time I checked had really laissez-faire charter rules, for-profit, you know, loose authorizing standards. But in the Massachusetts of the world, et cetera, where they're very high quality uh, nonprofit public charters, those are the states with the caps, right? That's right. And even New Jersey, we don't have an actual cap, but the governor just denied all expansions um, uh, a couple months ago. Uh, and he, you know, he, he depends heavily on the support of the, of the teachers unions. This is a big playbook from the unions where they try to make it about the money, right? And all these mm -hmm. candidates are constantly having to explain themselves about where does your money come from and all this. And what I would say to people is stop apologizing. The next time somebody says this to you in a debate or whatever, 
just say, look, I'll stop taking money from you know rich people who care about school choice if you stop taking money from rich people trying to protect their privilege, right? Because nobody's nobody's counting up the amount of people who live in in fancy neighborhood school districts uh, who are giving money to these candidates, and, and also never mind the union contributions. So it's like all these people protecting their privilege at the expense of children, and especially all children. I'll be like, I'll stop taking that money, you stop taking our money, then it'll be a fair fight. Until then, let's not make it about the money, let's make it about the ideas. I love it. I love it. I, I, we need you running for office, brother. I mean, that <laughs> I know too much about it, as do you. Uh, you yeah. know, I like my life right now. You know, I'll have I no hair that. left if I if I ran for office. Well, okay. Final pitch. Like we talked about this uh, a bit, but you know, to the to the person listening to this, you know, a progressive who's not quite there yet. What's your final point on this? Like, as we leave people to be like, look, this is what you should consider when you're thinking about whether to, you know, just ever so slightly be sympathetic to people pushing for public charter schools uh, and especially high quality public charter schools? I would start with just follow what's best for the babies, right? So if the schools are doing a good job for the children, which which almost every report that comes out uh, attests to, particularly for low-income students of color, there are definitely some outliers in the very uh, uh, laissez-faire states you've talked about. Some of the very, very red states where they allow for-profits, we don't support for-profits. But generally speaking, the data is consistently clear. Nonprofit public charter schools are doing a quality job, on average, better than the traditional public schools, which is why the families are choosing them. The families, the parents know best what's best for their babies. So if you're progressive, are you going to believe you know more about what's best for these children, their own parents and their own families? Right. You, you know, and that to me has to be overlaid with some racial bias because I can't, you know, it's sometimes when you have families of color, others think they know better than they do and what's for their children. The other point I'd make too, Ravi, is this model is something that we see throughout public policy and it doesn't seem to engender this sort of opposition in other contexts. So, for example, in, in Medicare, I'm progressive. I'm sure they believe the same thing that that I surely believe. Every human being should have a right to health care when they're sick. In that space, through Medicaid, which and people are talking about Medicaid for all. So we obviously agree with people. Progressives believe in Medicaid. With your Medicaid, they don't say you can Medicaid will only pay for health care at a hospital that the government runs, hires the doctors, hires the nurses, sets all the rules. They also say there's these nonprofit hospitals all over the country. Right. There's nonprofit organization that hire doctors and you can take your Medicaid and you can go get your services there. Right. Same with housing. Right. There's a lot of issues that anybody who's been involved in public housing understands when the government has to run housing developments, there tends to be a lot of issues. So you can take whether it's Section 8 or other programs, you can go to community development organizations, which are nonprofits, community based that also run housing. The real issue is this. We cut through it. Government is great at funding. Government can be pretty good at regulation. Our government isn't always the best in running complex enterprises that have to deliver professional services over time Amen. that are that are dynamic. Amen. That's just the reality of it. Amen. It's just not good at that. Amen. Right? So let's let it do what it does well. Fund and regulate and let's let's partner with the nonprofit sector which tends to be more innovative and more efficient in terms of getting us to the outcome. Well, amen to that, Shavar. Thank you so much for giving us a chunk of your time. Uh, how can we follow the work that you're doing and uh, and where can we check you out? Yeah, so you could follow me at Shavar Jeffries on Twitter, uh, at also Shavar Jeffries on Instagram. You can also follow our work at Ed Reform Now, uh, both on Twitter and on the website. 
edreformnow.org, uh, where we talk about the great work we do to fight for policies that have worked for our young people. That's it for this week's episode. I'd once again like to thank Shavar Jeffries for an illuminating conversation. The Regressives is produced for The Lost Debate by Joe Engelbrecht with research support and help from Joe Garvey and Monica Spezia. You can subscribe to The Lost Debate and The Regressives on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your shows. And that's it for The Regressives. I'm Ravi Gupta, and thank you for listening.